Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, creeps, and welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'm Ash, and with me as always is my co-ghost, John. Hello, lovely to be here, back making, digging, exhuming yet more fresh podcast content. Oh, and today will be fresh because we are joined by uh, someone we've talked, we've been on we've been on his show twice now and we are finally and super excited to have him on ours, uh, J.G. Michael from Parallax Views. How's it going? It is going very well. Um, I've actually been trying to find uh, a host to do the subject of this episode of Horror Vanguard because I've wanted to talk about the movie we're going to speak about for a long, long time. Um, And I am a heretic when it comes to this movie. And I I think that's a heresy we all now share. (laughs) Yeah, we've been converted. We've We've been brought over into the mysterious cult that that is propagated this film for thousands yeah, one, of one years. Might, one, might say, one might say we're part of an Illuminati now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's weird because, I mean, I, I guess if listeners weren't able to read the uh, episode title or, or read the synopsis, we're going to be covering <laughs> the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the next generation. It's not Revenge of the Nerds, the next generation. It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation, otherwise known by its original title of the return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, when I tell people that this is legitimately my favorite film in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, I didn't say it's the best um, because I really like Texas Chainsaw and Texas Chainsaw 2. And I even like uh, Jeff Burr's um, third movie in the franchise Leatherface but this is by far my favorite entry in the franchise and when I tell people that they either think oh you're being ironic right or uh, they'll just call me an idiot um, and I am not an idiot and I am not being ironic so I legitimately love this film and I will defend it to the death <laughs> yeah now, now that I've so I, I hadn't seen the director's cut prior to you suggesting this episode and now that I've seen the director's cut I'm 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 pretty close to agreeing I think I think the original might still be my favorite because it's like it's a classic and all of that garbage but like oh damn does this director's cut absolutely change how how I view the film <laughs> yeah absolutely I was uh, I have to confess that, that when I heard the, the film that you decided that you wanted to talk about, uh, I was not particularly excited. Um, I was not, I did not expect a great deal, but I think there are some, but you know what? Th- this director's cut version of the film, I think has absolutely won me round. Um, I'm a convert. I, I am on board. I think there are some really interesting things that we can talk about and pick up from it. Mm-hmm. Um, before we jump in, though, do you want to maybe just talk a little bit about Parallax Views and the kind of work that you do for those of our listeners who may not have come across you or the show before? Yeah, Parallax Views is sort of my 
sounding board for the many eclectic range of topics that just interest me. Um, I named it because A, uh, Slavoj Žižek, and also it's named after a very odd uh, Warren Beatty movie from, I believe, the 1970s called uh, Parallax View. And um, it's sort of a conspiracy thriller. And uh, I like covering conspiracy topics, even though I have a very... um ambiguous relationship to conspiracy theory. Um, I, I sort of like the left-wing hippie conspiracy types that read like Gary Webb's Dark Alliance, but I, I'm not a big fan of um, what has been called conspiracism or this idea that, you know, uh, there's a grand conspiracy controlling everything. Um, so I guess I hit a lot of different bases with that title. I hit the philosophy crowd and the left crowd with Zizek and also the sort of conspiracy and movie crowd with, uh, you know, that film reference to parallax view. Uh, and what kind of things, what kind of stuff have you covered lately? I mean, it, it's a real crazy hodgepodge. I mean, I've done true crime stuff. Um, I just had a, a journalist, Albert Lanier, on to talk about the um, unsolved murder of actor uh, Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes. Uh, in the past, I've had, you know, uh, left-wing guests uh, talking about politics, like Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show and The Majority Report. Um, I've had a, a, a cyber dominatrix on, Ciara Lynch. <laughs> So I, I cover anything and everything on Parallax Views. And it's sort of um, – I, I think that I want to continue in the tradition of like what's been called gonzo journalism. I know Hunter S. Thompson can be kind of problematic in some ways, but I sort of like his sort of um, – you know, just Gonzo tell it like it is style and, and the sort of like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of mad at these, you know, figures like Nixon or today, you know, Donald Trump and – I, I just think there's something about just saying, yeah, these people are greedheads. They're pigs. They're assholes. Um, I'm sorry for, for cussing. I don't know if you guys, but uh, you are you are absolutely allowed to swear on our show. <laughs> th this is a pro cussing podcast. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I just like uh, that style of just going into any area you want and sort of exploring things, um, no matter how crazy or wild it can get. And I no, think that's, that's, that's the, really the aim of Parallax Views. That's really cool. And it is and fantastically we will, executed. We will, of course, as always, put um, some cool stuff for everyone to check out in the show notes for this episode. But after that intro, uh, uh, Ash, you know, you know what time it is. <laughs> you, know, you know what the people expect at this point in a Horror Vanguard episode. It is, of course, time for Ash's... Uh, often imitated, never bettered uh, style of plot recap for today's film. Ash, take it away. Released October 1st, 1974, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the dawn of the slasher film. Hooper's now iconic vision of gore and terror assaulted the complacent American attitude towards the plight of rural workers, forced to toil away in slaughterhouses, and I am excited that today we are talking about the film in the Texas Chainsaw franchise that is the most loathed and despised out of every single entry in them. And that is 1995's, uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Star Trek, The Next Generation. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, is, hold on one second here. Is it yeah. really the most hated? I mean, people do people hate this one as much as they hate the remake or the prequel to the remake or that crappy Texas Chainsaw 3D with Alexandra Daddario where she throws the chainsaw over to Leather 
their face and says, do your thing, cuz, like it's a Disney movie? Is this really the most hated one? <laughs> I love Texas Chainsaw 3D because of the scene you just mentioned. I, I don't understand that, but we will agree to disagree. It is garbage. It is so good. I, yeah, I think I'm... <laughs> After after uh, uh, watching the director's cut, I, I would no longer rank this. Like this is definitely uh, you know number two in my list of best Texas Chainsaws. Mm-hmm. So so my view has completely changed. But I'm I'm curious if the greater uh, horror vanguard listenership would share those sympathies. Well, I'm I'm sorry for interrupting. By the way. <laughs> oh no, that was a completely valid interruption. Uh... The review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes gives this film the incredible rating of 14%. (laughs) So it may well be the most hated one out of all of them so far. You know who's a fan, though? That said, I think, uh, you know, we've all all got our our freshly ordered pizza in front of us, and I think we should dig in. (laughs) I wanted to say it may have a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, but Joe Bob Briggs is a fan of it. Point a point towards the film, <laughs> and who who cares who cares about Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes is notoriously incorrect in, in terms of the validity of its scoring. No, that's very true. That's very true. But Ash, what is this film actually all about? As as a lot of sequels tend to be, this film is a very faithful readaptation of the original. Uh, uh, prior, prior. To, if you haven't seen the director's cut, if you've only seen the version known as uh, what is it, the Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No, Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually the director's cut. That was the original title for Ooh. the movie. Next Generation is what they called it. I think upon the 1997 re-release, after Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, the stars got really big. Um, the original title was Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the the version the version that is before the director's cut is kind of just a mess. It's kind of just a hodgepodge. It's pretty much a hastily rewritten rehash of what made Texas Chainsaw work. Now now featuring pizza and Illuminati and like uh, interesting body horror. But if you've seen the director's cut, if you've seen Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Jedi. <laughs> the film is just fantastic. Like I don't even think I don't even think covering the plot so much is is because the plot is very like it's cut and dry. Like a, bu- a bunch of chains wind up being like chased around by like uh, exploitation horror guys on prom night. <laughs> on prom night of all nights. But I think I think we should just dig. I think we should just dig right into the film. Let's do with it. with with the opening that the uh, director's cut restores to the footage. Well, yeah. So I, I wanted to say real quick. So the Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation, the version most people have seen, it starts with the uh, obligatory monologue of you know in 1974, whatever you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yada yada yada. Um, and then it cuts to the prom immediately. But the director's cut is very, very different. And we're introduced right off the bat to Renee Zellweger's character, my favorite final girl in all of horror film history, uh, Jenny, who has a very dysfunctional home life. Um, she's getting ready for prom when her dad barges in on her and, you know, he's hitting on her and she's like, no, get out, get out of my face. And he 
literally just pushes her up against a wall. And, you know, he's very abusive. And he says to her, what are you going to do? Tell your mom who's she going to believe anyways? And he walks out and, you know, the mom is saying, oh, what's wrong, Jenny? What's wrong? And the dad is just like, ah, shut up. You know, what do you need? A, 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 a legal confirmation that she's okay? And he just sort of berates all the women um, in his life. Uh, you get that impression. And I think it's a very... Uh, it's a disturbing scene because it's it's about domestic violence and dysfunctional families in a very real way that we don't often see in a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre because there's so much exaggeration of that dysfunction in these movies. Yeah, and I, I would definitely like I, I would add to that 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 beginning sequence is like really truly tense and and horrifying it, it's it's conveying the father's abuse of her daughter using all of the beats of a horror movie. You know, we, we get we get the tension, we get the cuts, we get these like very awkward close ups like he is so close to her face and it is so uncomfortable. And then we get a lot of like tiny elements, too, that I think really sells it like the in the beginning shot where we see Jenny. It's just, um, you know, we're, we're hearing the news in the background and the news is talking about like, you know, like uh, foreign affairs crises and, and like local murders and stuff. So it's very, very tense already, very dramatic. And she's just applying lipstick. But then when she hears the father abusing her mother downstairs, she hastily removes it and kind of like, you know, like if, if you know a little bit about abuse and you kind of know what that's like synecdoche for and what that's kind of like a symbolic representation of, like that moment alone has so much tension baked into it <laughs> and how the rest of the film kind of handles and distorts that like initial tension is magnifique. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, he doesn't just, like I said, he doesn't just stop at the abuse of Jenny. He, you know, I think yeah. he says at one point, um, you know, he, he's the stepfather. The mother has been married multiple times, and we're sort of, it's implied that this happens a lot in Jenny's life. Uh, but I think um, the mother says, you know, I was just thinking about Jenny, and, you know, the stepfather is just like, don't think, you don't know how to do that, or, or something along those mm -hmm. lines. It's, it's very... Um, it's it's sort of upsetting because I mean there are people that have to deal with that kind of thing in real life. What do you think, John? No, I agree. I actually think that the opening scene of Jenny getting ready for prom is probably one of the most upsetting scenes in the film because there's this. I think horror. I have a theory about this film that it works best when you realize that horror is the kind of literalizing of often stuff that people go through every single day. So, you know, we we don't necessarily exist in a world with, with chainsaw-wielding slasher killers, but those stand in as, um, you know, concretizations of scenarios and situations that are often very mundane. You know, uh, as anyone who is who has dealt with a, a, an abusive situation or, or an abusive relationship or any other kind of um, trauma will be able to state. So I think that this opening scene is, is maybe one of the most uh, viscerally upsetting <laughs> because it has this uh, very similitude. It has this kind of um, reality to it that a lot of the other, the, a lot of the rest of the film uh, doesn't we get we we kind of hit the other kind of horror tropes but this opening scene of her getting ready for prom is really upsetting and immediately puts you as a, a as a viewer like on edge mm -hmm. for something 
Well, I was going to say, too, um, it's very deliberate, I think, on the director mm-hmm. and writer Kim Henkel's part, who, uh, just as a note, Kim Henkel actually uh, co-wrote the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Toby Hooper. A lot of people don't realize that. And this was his, uh, what he wanted with this movie was for it to be the true sequel to the original film. Because, I mean, like all the other sequels, it doesn't really follow, um, you know, the other sequels. It, it, it only follows after the first film, essentially. Um, which I think is interesting because to me, the Texas Chainsaw movies are like the, um, repetition of, of an urban legend told in variations essentially um but what's interesting about this scene too is this uh, sort of scene of the stepfather saying you know basically shut up know your role and you know don't fight back uh that's reiterated multiple times throughout the film with various characters and how they treat women and i i think it's very intentional on henkel's part um it's also interesting because I think if there's a downside to the movie, the tone can get very odd at times because, you know, every Texas Chainsaw movie, I would argue, up, up until, you know, the remake, um, they're sort of like meldings of horror and comedy. I mean, the second one is, is a very obvious comedy. The third one sort of has these comedic elements where, you know... Leatherface is going through his like teen angst phase so there's always been comedic yeah. elements but this is like a uh, pretty straight up satire of the slasher genre but at the time it's dealing with like really serious topics of abuse so it creates sort of an unevenness in tone at times yeah no i would completely i would uh completely agree that tonally i think this film is i mean the there's a lot about this film which i think is is wildly inconsistent um, and it sort of it, it struggles to, to to sort of ground itself. But but the things that I think it's doing is are actually really really interesting. And I think as a critique of horror films, especially horror films uh, from that time, it's incredibly effective. Don't you think, Cash? Yeah, honestly, like so so usually kind of from like a screenplay level critique of of the structure and, and like tonal flaws of this film. Usually that would be something for me where I'd be like, ah, okay, like, I can see where the rewrites, like, the, we'll get into this later, but the Illuminati thing, I definitely agree, like, that's a very, like, that, that, that for me is when this starts to become very tonally confusing, but the, yeah. the reoccurring depictions of various levels of, of, uh, abuse that, that women face throughout this film and how that kind of tonally intermeshes with the, like, comical failings of the slaughter family to kind of like recapture the horror and gore and intensity of the original Texas Chainsaw film. I actually think those two slot together very well. Like I think it's, it's highlighting what the true horror is in this film. It's kind of highlighting what the true monstrosity is by making that tonality kind of a bumpy ride for the audience. Does that necessarily translate if you're not like someone people like us who just like you know all we all we like to do is talk about movies until our heads fall off i'm not quite sure like if if you're just going to this for scares you know you're going to walk away very confused i i would agree with that i mean i I didn't find myself 
horrified by it for much of the picture. Like I said, there's disturbing parts to me, but mm. mo- there were times where I was laughing out loud because I, I think oh, yeah. there's a lot of intentional humor in this. And uh, I, I was wondering, maybe we could talk a little bit about the sort of setup um, because it this takes a while to really um, – how do I put it? it? It takes a while to build up and the characters mm. are very cartoonishly exaggerated, but I, I think there's a reason for that. Um, the main characters are, as we said, Jenny, uh, our final girl. And then there's Heather, who's sort of the ditzy prom queen, um, ice queen in a way. Uh, then there's Barry, the stereotypical sort of jockish, you know, just dude bro. And then there's uh, Sean. Sean is uh, sort of the nice guy that's with uh, Jenny. Um, and they, they all end up leaving the the prom after, you know, Heather finds out that her boyfriend Barry is making out with uh, another girl. And they, they all get in the car and Barry's giving this spiel where he says, my dad's a doctor and, and you know, I, you won't give me sex and I, I could get prostate cancer if you don't give me sex. And then Jenny pops up and she's like, he's lying. He's just making that up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Heather character is like, well, maybe he's right. She's like, even if he is right, you know, so what? Like, he's just being manipulative. And it's funny because Barry says, oh, shut up, Jenny. Then he tells Heather to shut up, too, at the end of that scene. So, again, we see that theme of of sort of women being berated by these male characters uh, throughout the movie. Yeah, and I think that that as a thematic element, Mm -hmm. especially with the restored opening sequence, is so interwoven, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry, Barry is abusive. I, I don't know if he's ever named, but there is a male teacher outside of the prom who, like, is he's got like two big lines, and one he's like he's kind of like chatting up the kids as they walk in, and he's like, "Oh, you're gonna have a great time." And as, and as they're going away, he's like pulling out a cigarette, and he's like, "I fucking hate kids." Mm-hmm. And then he has <laughs> then, the line about like uh, a woman being yep. naked, and she she was dropping like a, a battleship or a dinghy or something. Yeah, it's very yeah toxic masculine. <laughs> yeah. And and then, and then but we also see that with like Vilmer later on when we get to the uh, slaughter family, and then we see that with Rothman and the end and the Illuminati and it's just it's so layered throughout this film and and it's not it's so kind of like deftly handled in a way that's just honestly unexpected for like the weird Texas Chainsaw Massacre maligned sequel movie <laughs> to to feature like abuse as extreme as what the the stepfather's sexual assault that we see in the beginning. All the way down to like the the casual toxic masculinity of like the teacher and the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. This is absolutely more evidence for the long-held uh, horror vanguard uh, position that uh, men are just bad, men, uh, <laughs> especially men in horror films, um, because horror is this site of. Uh, acceleration and intensification of already existing uh, patterns and trends so yeah as an indictment of of the toxic masculinity of of heterosexual male culture in the 90s this is bang on well you know I I was going to say I wanted to get into this uh, just briefly Uh, what do you guys think of uh, the other sort of main female character in this movie, I, I I actually 
love the female characters in this movie. Like, like I, I, I really feel for them. Um, and the other main one is Heather, who sort of she plays this ice queen character um, and sort of a ditzy character at the same time. But there's a really interesting monologue that she has uh, or dialogue with Barry at one point where, you know, she says, you know, I'm not stupid. You know, I know that what you were saying about, you know, oh, if I don't give you head, I, I you'll get prostate cancer. I know that's BS. And he says, oh, Jenny put that in your head. And she's like, no, I just I pretend to be dumb because that's what you expect of me. That's what men expect of me. You know, and I'm kind of a bitch. Like, that's that's how I play this role. And she says uh, she brings up her mother being in a really horrible relationship with her dad. And she says, you know, but she wants a certain lifestyle. And then she says, and that's the best way to get it. And Barry says, well, what's wrong with that? She just sort of rolls her eyes and, and she, you know, he doesn't really get where she's coming from, like how she feels about sort of having to be boxed into this role if she wants to live the material life she wants to lead. And um, I actually think it's a really effective scene. It makes me much more th sympathetic with her, for her. Yeah, yeah. I really feel for, for Heather's character. And that scene is just like... For, for as clumsy as a lot of like the third act of this movie gets once the Illuminati shows up, like we'll the, get the to scene, that, <laughs> right? Yeah, when um, the scenes with Heather and Jenny and Darla and and their interactions with hierarchy and patriarchy and the abuses that they face are so organic and real and lived in that they're like like they really feel like they could be from a different film. And like yeah. that, that, that little speech from Heather where she's just like, you know, like you get the sense that this is like the first time that she's actually tried to reach her boyfriend on any kind of emotional level. Mm -hmm. And like just the callousness with, 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 with which he's just like, uh, yeah, so what? Shrug? Like he's, he's not even registering the kind of like real traumatic pain that Heather is, is bringing to the fore in that moment. Mm-hmm. There's a there's another moment which made me really pay attention in the first ten minutes where Heather is constantly talking about dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, she's always talking about death when they're walking through. So the, they they go off for a drive post prom and they immediately start arguing about what would happen if they got in a crash and then they get in a crash mm -hmm. and then they start walking through the woods to find a payphone or, or or someone who can call a a, a tow truck. And she makes a reference to Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, yeah, uh, what if we get our hearts Dahmer. in a refrigerator or whatever? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and she's constantly talking about the fact that she feels that she's being watched and she, that she's going to die. And everyone goes, oh, shut up. Nobody's out. But I'm also like, this is a very kind of prescient uh, awareness and understanding of the, of the very real threat of male violence being visited upon women. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So, so everyone, oh no, nobody's watching you. Nobody's gonna like this. Is just, and she's sort of gaslit into this into this situation. <laughs> but it's a very real risk, and she's <laughs> hyper aware of the fact that her position is extremely vulnerable. Which <laughs> was one of the moments where, that uh, very early in the film, where I I felt very sympathetic, <laughs> and it was a very engaging character moment because you go, you know, she she understands far more than someone like Barry will ever allow her to show. Well, it's, it's funny, too, because she says uh, to Barry uh, during that dialogue we were talking about, me and Ash, um, 
she says, oh, I know no one's going to kill us and blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know, you do get the impression that she's very hyper aware of what's going on around her initially. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I guess we should get into how do they end up meeting up with the sort of a chainsaw family who in this movie, um, their name is changed from the Sawyer family to the slaughter family. And there's a specific reason for that, that most people don't know about. Um, I guess in the original film, um, you know, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, um, at Drayton Sawyer's gas station, it says, uh, W E slaughters barbecue. So I guess the original name for the family was, you know, sort of this jokey, they're the slaughter family. Yeah. Um, but how, how do they sort of meet up with, uh, the slaughter family or the Sawyer family or just the, the chainsaw gang, so to speak? So, so the, so the, our, our lovable teens are driving through, like they they make a wrong turn and they wind up in like spooky movie standard issue fog woods <laughs> where your visibility's cut down to like a quarter of an inch in front of you and then they're like randomly ran into by another car and uh the tow truck that shows up is Vilmer Slaughter mm-hmm. played in unique style by Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> well, in, in, I was going to say too role, Go on. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just—I was just going to, to to comment that that uh, Matthew McConaughey is incredibly good as Vilmer. Mm-hmm. What well, I was going to mention too, I guess even before Vil- we enter Vilmer, um, it's worth noting uh, that the kids meet up with uh, a woman, this sort of trashy. I, I think she's a, a an insurance agent by the name of Darla, and she's the one that calls Vilmer to pick up their their truck. And uh, it, it, I guess we'll get into her character in a little bit, but uh, there, there's a lot to dissect with all of these characters. I feel like, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's, there's a, especially with Darla. Like, I yeah, we're we're gonna have to get into her at some point because she is clearly in dialogue with Heather and Jenny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they find Dala's office, and I think, yeah, she's either an insurance broker or, like, a realtor, uh, and she she uh, calls Vilma, and then uh, the three, so three of them have wandered off, and one of them has stayed back with the car to take care of one of the people who was injured in the other car, um, uh, which is Sean. Sean is the one who stays stays behind. Um, and that's where Vilma <laughs> enters enters the, the the narrative, so to speak. Um, so should we should we talk about uh, Vilma uh, or Matthew McConaughey? As I couldn't stop myself thinking about him throughout the entire <laughs> film, I was ninety percent sure he wasn't really acting in a lot of this. <laughs> it you know this... it reminded me of his role in the William Friedkin movie Killer Joe, where you also get to see power rage insane McConaughey. <laughs> He's so good at this. I, I'm like, this This is where the timeline split, man. We could have, like, the true good timeline where we're currently living in a socialist utopia is Matthew McConaughey as a star of horror film. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, he basically, in this, would you guys agree with this? He's essentially playing, I wouldn't say he's playing the hitchhiker from the original film he's basically playing the hitchhiker 2.0 complete with like uh, a mechanical leg and he is really well i i'll use the term i used earlier in the show he is really gonzo 
<laughs> and he, he rides a he, he rides a commits. truck that says what's that? He commits. He commits. Oh yeah, to, yeah. To, to every single moment. And he he rides a tow truck that says Illuminati wrecking. So that's our first Illuminati reference. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so he immediately uh, starts sort of dropping these somewhat ominous hints to Sean, the, the kind of floppy-haired nice boy, um, who decides to try and run, which is a big mistake. Um, and Sean then has literally no more role to play uh, except as being the kind of prey of Matthew McConaughey, um, who runs him over with his truck. Uh, but not before he has found the uh, injured passenger in the other car and just snapped his neck in front of him, uh, in front of Sean, whilst he goes, what are you doing? It's it's an amazing moment because Sean goes, uh, uh, Vilma goes, this 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 guy's dead. Sean goes, no, he mm-hmm. was talking. He was he was talking in his sleep. He's fine. He's got to go to a hospital. Uh, and so then he just snaps his neck and goes, well, he's definitely dead now. I'm like, well, that's one way to clear up a problem, isn't it? <laughs> right. And, and I, do love, I do love how, like, we go from that sequence to, like, Vilmer chases Sean in his truck. And then, like, it's just an, an immediate cut to, like, Sean being winded at the side of the road and Vilmer pulling up and being like, okay, going to kill you now. And then yeah. Sean is like gee howdy mister how about we negotiate this (laughs) like he is the most like like he has like maybe what like 10 lines of dialogue but it is all the most like opie from mayberry kind of pure-hearted nonsense Mm -hmm. Mm, yeah and like you just watched you just watched vilmer snap a man's neck like a deer (laughs) on the side of the road and and you're gonna be like oh gee willikers how about we have a discourse <laughs> yeah, when when you have someone who has just straight up murdered somebody because that would be the most convenient thing to do, I don't think that is the time to suddenly go, "Oh boy, Mister, I sure hope we can work this out together." Although, although now that I'm saying this, like if if I'm ever like ran down by like a crazed uh, hillbilly tow truck guy, my my dying words are going to be something like. Actually, do you know the history of exploitation and the use of the working class <laughs> iconography of the tow truck drivers? Re- oh! <laughs> so, so I feel for Sean. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of miss Sean not being in this movie much. He, he's like the most expendable character in it. But, you know, he's also like the only uh, presumably like good man in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, because he he um, there's some suggestions earlier that. Uh, him and Jenny are just friends, and he's he's he goes everywhere with her because um, she doesn't want to be alone with other people for very understandable reasons. Um, but yeah, he is clearly treated as the most expendable, and he is eighty uh, sixth out of there so quick. I think it's within like fifteen minutes or so <laughs> of the film starting, and he is gone. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting too with the Vilmer character. When we're first introduced to him, he is uh, like a legitimately sort of scary figure in this. You know, he, he's yeah. like really, you know, got it all together. He knows exactly how to terrorize these kids, and he knows exactly what to say. But it'll get interesting as we go into it because he has this progressive deterioration, and I think it's. It's something we see with a lot of men who, when they feel like they lose control, they will just go over the top 
with, you know, explosive rage that will be directed at everyone, even the people that are supposedly on their side. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after that, um, our three remaining survivors get separated. Vilma ends up picking up Jenny in the in the truck. Mm-hmm. Um, and Heather and Barry end up finding their way uh, to a farmhouse, uh, which is where we have the introduction of two more characters from the Slaughter family, mm-hmm. uh, which is W uh, and Leatherface himself. So what w- W-E. W-E, yes. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think about W-E and Leatherface? I, I think here is where we get really interesting, because both uh, W-E, like Leatherface, we're going to have to have such a conversation about the history of Leatherfaces throughout time. And, like, W-E is just, like, we, so we were talking a, a little bit about W-E before we started rolling, and, like, he is such an interesting character, right? Because he, I think... He slots in so well with the rest of the men in this film, right? Because, you know, all the rest of the men, the men in this film, uh, with the uh, exception of Sean, who leaves us quickly. Uh, all right, W-E, Sean. Right, yeah. Shout out, shout out to Sean. You will be missed. Uh, but W, so W-E, like, um, every, every, like, third line he has is some, like, philosophy quote <laughs> that's couched in, like, oh, I bet you didn't know who that was. And, and it's it's very it's very apparent that W. E. isn't interested in these these quotes and these sayings and these philosophies as modes of thinking or ways of interpreting the world or interrogating their lives. He's interested in posturing, right? He's interested he's interested in knowledge as a way to have power over people, <laughs> right? Like the content of what he says is marginally meaningful in the given situations, but it's extra meaningful to him that he's able to like throw out like a highfalutin philosophy quote in order to kind of put down and belittle the people around him. Like which in our e- case is Barry. <laughs> like every asshole in a Kant seminar that I've ever been in. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I was going to say, uh, the thing about W.E. that I, I find interesting is he reminds me of, you know, all these, um, you know, I don't want to say kids these days, but like these <laughs> these men that are like they think because they read Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris that they know everything yeah. and they'll just expound on, you know, the decline of of everything now. And, you know, there's one point um, during one of, you know, the obligatory uh, dinner scene where W.E. actually says uh, there's just not enough discipline anymore. There's been a decline in family values. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so like he's like this. I mean, he reminds me of the alt right. <laughs> I mean, well, I, think, I, mean I, think, I think he quotes Machiavelli, right? He, <laughs> yeah. quotes, he, he quotes Machiavelli. He quotes um, Samuel Johnson. Uh, he's definitely kind of trying to place it like to use, uh, like Ash pointed out, like trying to use knowledge uh, as power. Mm-hmm. But he's actually really dumb. He gets locked out of his own house by Barry. <laughs> yes, that, that, is, that, is, that is the thing, right? And I think it is very prescient that you bring up uh, Sam Harris, right? Because, like, S- Sam Harris has built his entire career around posturing as a semi-spiritual intellectual, right? <laughs> like, his, his, his entire grift that he's been on has just been elevating himself and trying to engage philosophically but it's readily apparent that he has no clue what he's talking about and the same can be said for jordan b peterson as we saw in his recent debate with zizek 
and like like this whole the whole like uh, uh, we're, uh I always forget their dumb acronym like the the dark web enlightenment you know those guys mm-hmm. like they are all we slaughter they are all this figure that like yes they're able to quote a bunch of people but they have zero understanding about the material they're quoting how it interacts with the rest of philosophy and the purpose for this whole discourse they're just interested in this kind of vacuous posturing (laughs) you know there's that line we has where he quotes machiavelli and he says um something along the lines of i'm paraphrasing here but he says uh you know the man without a gun gets no respect or something like that. And I'm just thinking, like, that's exactly something Jordan Peterson would say. And Jordan Peterson is, like, apparently from, like, you know, a part of Canada that's very rural. You know, his I, I know his wife, and this is based on my having spoken to uh, Dr. Bernard Schiff, um, who hired him at the University of Toronto. He says that Peterson and, and his wife have a, a very apocalyptic view and that Peterson is, like, going to be the one that saves uh the youth uh from the apocalypse um so maybe the peterson family has like some weird uh texas chainsaw cult going on too i don't know i could see it i I would not doubt it (laughs) yeah i mean isn't 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 it peterson's daughter who's making that making so much money off that grift of like an all meat diet yep oh my god they're gonna start making chili made of human flesh like drayton did in texas chainsaw 2 oh my (laughs) god that's this is how it goes down, isn't it? Right? <laughs> oh, we we have we've stumbled on. I'm gonna have to cut this from the episode. We've stumbled on <laughs> something. Uh, uh, c- c- cut the tape, everybody. We have to go into hiding. We found the truth. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's 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 really interesting, and and it doesn't. So when you say when when they say that uh, Peterson has this apocalypse, like presumably the Peterson apocalypse is what like cultural Marxism or. Mm-hmm. When when I interviewed Schiff, what he said was that, I mean, I mean, they had this is too long to go into, but they they had a very bad falling out because um, Peterson actually made references to Schiff's daughter who is trans, and he he made references to her illness, um, and she has a, a legit illness, but he was sort of referring to her transness, and mm-hmm. for that his daughter was attacked by all these Peterson fans who looked up her email and Schiff's email. And, um, you know, I guess Schiff talked to Peterson after that. And Peterson's like, you don't understand. Like I've been tasked with having to save everything. Like he made it sound out like he made it, he made it sound like Peterson is, um, slowly unraveling, like thinking he's going to be like some messianic figure. So that, that's what I meant. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, I, I think there's going to be a Rob Zombie directed horror film based around the Peterson family at this rate. Totally. Don't don't tease me like that. <laughs> you cannot you cannot put all of all of my like niche interests in a basket like that. <laughs> Just dangle it in front of Ash. And like Zizek Zizek co-writes. Hell yeah. So it's it's interesting in this scene with we're introduced to W E and Leatherface. I like that Barry says. You know, to W.E. says, my dad's a lawyer. You know, like he said, oh, my dad's a doctor in the other one. So this is another like aspect of like I see men do this all the time where they'll, Mm -hmm. you know, make up stuff about their family or themselves to sort of puff their chest out. And that's something Barry does throughout this whole movie. We mentioned he locks out uh, W.E. Sawyer. 
um, or W.E. Slaughter, I guess, in this movie. And uh, he's like, you should have seen me, Heather. Lock that dumbass out. It's like he's always like trying to be like, you know, the, right. the stereotypical male. Um, but it's it's interesting because what what I liked was the introduction of of Leatherface because you have. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have Barry talking to W.E. who's threatening to shoot him for being on his property as, mm-hmm. you know, libertarians will tend to say they'll do like get off my lawn kid i will shoot you because i'm a libertarian uh <laughs> but then you have uh heather sort of sitting on uh like a the, the chair outside the house the the slaughterhouse and uh, you know she's she's just doing herself up a little bit and uh there's this figure behind her that starts touching her hair but uh when she sees this figure and who it is you know, obviously it's Leatherface. The reaction of Leatherface is actually quite funny, and I think this is one of the reasons people hate this movie so much. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, he really, acts really with like... terror. He reacts with terror yep. at seeing her. <laughs> and I, I think I think it's just like so. So like you know, by by the time this movie's released in '95, Leatherface is one of the most iconic and terrifying kind of, kind of like of all of the like easily identifiable horror monsters right especially in the slashers mm. and like to to introduce him in this movie just kind of like timidly trying to like sniff a girl's hair is the least leatherface way to to you know like like this is this is the guy who bounds out of the barn house and then like like grabs you in his arms and throws you on a meat hook like he has power and he has terror and in this movie he is so timid and so incapable of anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, even when he like, grabs, even when he grabs yep. Heather and and she puts up a fight, the fight is like really, really prolonged. It's also, I don't know, it's it's one of the aspects of the movie that bothers me because like I think the things the female characters are put through, it goes like a little bit over the top or too much over the top to my liking. But I, I don't know what yeah. you guys think of that. So the fight between. Heather and Leatherface I thought was really interesting because for me that was doing kind of simultaneously two things, right? It's, it's highlighting the the fact that this is not the Leatherface you're used to. This is a Leatherface that quite frankly sucks at being Leatherface. You know, like like Heather, if, if Heather is going to fall into like any of the preconceived categories of horror characters, she's, she's kind of like the pretty dumb girl who's going to die right away. Mm-hmm. And like here here she is like pretty pretty capably squirming and and resisting leatherface and we we get that whole like extended sequence where like leatherface can't even like do do the classic leatherface thing of locking somebody in a freezer you know he mm-hmm. can't even accomplish that mm-hmm. and and the second thing it's doing for me is like we've kind of got two levels of horror going on in this movie we've got like the the very real horror faced by women and all of the different levels that that they they face that on on a daily basis and then we've got like the the spooky movie stuff going on but the spooky movie stuff is like bad and failing and inept and awkward throughout this whole film and for me that just highlights the the extant terror of of patriarchy and assault and this this first sequence with leatherface is really kind of nailing that for me yeah, totally. But I also think that that's part of the problem, right? Because as we've maybe touched on, this film is wildly tonally inconsistent. Um, and I think 
that gets very difficult when you're trying to when i think uh, to be charitable i think this film is trying to do something very specific with the way that it uses violence i do think the film is trying to make a point about the nature of patriarchal authority but i mm. also think you can undercut that in actually quite serious and problematic ways when you also go and there's also a wacky slapstick element to all of this <laughs> i mean like if you put the right music under that first confrontation between heather and leatherface like the benny hill theme like oh yeah be, yeah if you hit that with mm. the acne sax yeah, yeah like that would that would be it's a comedy beat right mm. the fact that he she keeps getting out of the meat and he has to keep <laughs> putting her back in but that jars quite uncomfortably when you've had a film that opens with a scene of domestic abuse that is played extremely realistically um so I, that that i don't know i don't know if, if i could i think the film struggles to hold those together in a cohesive mm. piece i think i think they they work against each other and and i think that's a shame well, it's, it's also very weird because, um, you know, the Heather character is sort of portrayed as that stereotypical, you know, the feeble girl. But at the same time, you know, and I it took me a few viewings to realize it. She's pretty much a survivor for most yeah, yeah, of the film. Totally. I mean, she doesn't necessarily put up a fight in the way that Jenny does. But, mm -hmm. you know, she has it in her. Um, whereas, you know, Barry who tries to, after this confrontation with W.E. Sawyer, he, he locks Sawyer out and he's like, ha I beat you. Uh, and he, he goes to uh, take a leak and then he finds a dead body in the bathtub and he's, ah, you know, freaking out. And he walks out and just like that, Leatherface just hammered to the head. And that's the end yep. of Barry. I mean, the men in this movie that, you know, are supposed to be like the protectors of the, the girls, uh, they're almost even more effective ineffective than the uh, slaughter family in this uh, outing <laughs> yeah definitely and I, re I really like how you frame uh, kind of kind of heather and jenny as and, and we'll, we'll get in, we'll get into her I, I think i think we should take a detour and talk about um darla in a second but like heather jenny and darla are all survivors of abuse and they're kind of survivors of that like persistent ambient kind of abuse that exists in a patriarchal society and they, they've each kind of like managed different ways to cope and confront and outlast it regardless of if you get killed by the chainsaw wielding guy at a certain point in the film also since we're on the topic of of leatherface's character i want to note that um the actor who plays Leatherface in this is Robert Jacks, who was able to get Debbie Harry involved in this film from Blondie. Yeah. And they did a song together for this movie. So Debbie Harry was involved in this picture, and that makes me so happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think that the introduction of Leatherface is uh, really interesting and i think the characterization of leatherface is extremely interesting uh especially the this has been commented on quite a lot actually in in uh analysis of the film as the connection between leatherface of Le leatherface and drag especially mm -hmm. in this film where where the faces uh are all coded as female the the long hair there's there's often uh wigs uh, so what do you think about that aspect of things well it's an aspect in the original Texas chainsaw but I think most of the scenes uh, were deleted, um, where it's implied that there's sort of this um, cross-dressing aspect. 
to right. Leatherface, um, mm-hmm. although it's it's alluded to in the first film. Um, I, I think it's an interesting direction to take the character in and to expand upon what they were doing in the first film and sort of make it more blunt. Um, but a lot of people actually also, that's another reason people hate this movie. They're like, why why is there a transvestite Leatherface? I don't get it. What do you guys think, though? So, so for me, like, there, there are, Leatherface is kind of a hard character to talk about. I think it's the hardest character, in my opinion, to talk about in this film. Because Le- Leatherface exists at a really interesting intersection, right? Because we have, um, oh my god, we have Vilmer and Leatherface, who are both the two characters that the film goes out of the way to kind of signify, have some kind of disability, right? Mm-hmm. Vilmer has a leg that is supported by like a homemade mechanical device mm-hmm. and and Leatherface clearly has a, a variety of mental illnesses mm-hmm. and then we also have like the gender dynamics going on here and Leatherface kind of falls in between those well yeah it's and... it's interesting because um the Leatherface character is is also abused for oh, yeah, yeah. being too feminine. I mean, W.E. Sawyer uh, uses sort of the, I think it's a taser or a cattle prod um, and, and keeps hitting leather with it. Uh, and, you know, I think Darla is like, you need to stop that. I'm, I'm going to tell Vilmer, but he does it anyways. And he just keeps abusing leather uh, because of that femininity. You know, it's almost like all these characters are threatened by femininity in, 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 in being displayed in any way. Yeah, yeah, and that, that is something I, I completely agree with. And I think there's even, like, a metatextual analysis, too, of, like, th- this is one of the the most kind of, like, fan-despised incarnations of Leatherface expressly because this is a very feminine Leatherface. And that is a huge departure from, from where we're at initially. And I think that... But, like, oh, there's also there's also, like, it's very exploitative of what we would view in 2019 as like a competent handling of gender issues, let's say. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think that's true, but I also think that perhaps Ash, there's an interesting point there that you pick up on, which is that this film does function in many ways as a critique of, yes. uh, Of not only like the Texas Chainsaw franchise, but of horror films in generally, generally, and the ways in which horror films are received and consumed, right? <laughs> the slasher killer is a, is a power fantasy. And as people like Carol Clover have pointed out, that's a power fantasy that's predominantly aimed towards young, young heterosexual white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the idea of the, this being the most hated by fans version of Leatherface is actually very telling when you yes. compare it with some of the anthropological work that people like Clover did in Men, Women and Chainsaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, would, I completely, completely agree. I I would definitely agree with that. I I think there's a lot going on with the uh, the Leatherface character. I wanted to get your guys' take on the um the, what's going on with Vilmer and Renee Zellweger's character uh, Jenny. Again, my favorite final girl of all time. Uh, what do you guys think about that scene where he he really does like he picks her up and is like, "You want to get in." You know, and she's like, I don't know. And, and he's like, get in. And he just really terrorizes her psychologically um, for a moment there, eh, culminating with with him saying, look at look, look at the uh, back of the back of the truck. 
look through the window and she sees Sean's dead body and the other boy who, who they wrecked, uh, who, who was in the car wreck with them. Um, and she, you know, ends up running from Vilmer, Vilmer and he says a few things like, um, oh, what was it? Uh, you know, it's, it's your choice. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the real world, I think was what he said at one point yeah. too. And it's, it's really, these scenes with Vilmer are very, um, off-putting to me because it, it, it's that psychological terror that I find really, um, sort of terrifying about the Vilmer character, at least at this early stage in the film. Yeah, and I think um, Vilmer's also functioning on a lot of metaphoric levels because, like, what's one of the first things he does once he gets Jenny in the car? He takes off her glasses and breaks them, mm-hmm. right? And like, like, what are we, what are we trying to read Jenny's glasses as? There are they the societal convention she's been handed through which she must view the world, and then that's what she has to shed before she can see that the men around her have been like disarmed or defeated, and now that's power for her mm-hmm. to claim. Or is that Vilmer trying to like further blind her and further place her in a place of weakness? You know, I think, and and Vilmer because Vilmer is constantly prodding her to kind of come out and come into a new space. But is that new space somewhere where she can grow, or is that a new space of like total victimhood? And what? I think like, especially when we get on to the to the Illuminati later, <laughs> that's going to be something we have to talk about more. Well, it's, it's very interesting to me because um, the thing we, we haven't mentioned about Jenny is the, the constant thing that is referenced is – and Barry says it at one point um, when he's talking to Heather uh, – that, that – that Jenny, she's such a dog, you know, and everyone sort of comments on her being, you know, unattractive, the glasses, the frumpy dress. And I think Heather says at one point, no, she's got a body to die for, you know, the, see her in PE. She's like incredibly athletic. And we see that come out more and more throughout the film. But at this early stage, she sort of um, she takes up a guise of being weaker in order to, you know, not get the ire of the men around her, or at least that's the impression True. I get. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's a very, that's a very good read. And it's yeah, also like, that also kind of falls into like a lot of standard horror stuff. Right. You know, we also have like Carrie to think about too. And it's like an, an actress who's incredibly attractive, but they have to like give her frumpy clothes and hair and glasses to code her as being unattractive. And I think, in many ways, uh, this film is a very is it is, is fits very well into Clover's final girl model, um, and I do think it's trying it's trying to. Uh, I I also agree. I think I think Renee Zellweger is a fantastic uh, gives mm-hmm. a fantastic performance. Easily the best actor in the film, uh, and as a final girl, you see the moment where where she she like she pulls out the shotgun and turns the mm-hmm. shotgun on them all. And you're like, yeah, this makes sense. This 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 is a this is a this is a character that is um, taking command of something and rejecting <laughs> rejecting those two poles of either you uh, exert the same violence that's been exerted upon you or you become a victim. Like she rejects both of those options, right? Well, it's it's interesting too because um, this is one of the few female slasher characters where she has vulnerabilities 
but she also has strengths. And I think a lot of times, um, a lot of horror movies want to have it either or. Like, she's either completely vulnerable or, you know, she's just some badass woman like in the Tom Savini remake of uh, Night of the Living Dead. Whereas, you know, Jenny has elements of both. One of the things that stuck out to me was... um, you know, she eventually gets chased by Leatherface, right? Uh, right after Vilmer leaves her, uh, you know, uh, in the woods, uh, she gets chased by Leatherface. She's chased by him a few times throughout the movie, but at one point, she she points a gun at Leatherface, um, and it, it doesn't work. So she runs up the stairs, and and she makes this like heroic dive and, and jumps on uh, a cable, and she's like climbing mm-hmm. the cable just to escape Leatherface and you really see that she's a survivor even the way she runs you know the, yeah. the way she's portrayed as running it's 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 kind of like she's kind of majestic in a way because she she just got this real spunk and spirit to her even though she's terrified at the same time and i think i think that touches on the rest of the women in this film right they're all they they all kind of defy the stock characters they've been handed right they all have this kind of like really nuanced strength and simultaneous weakness, and especially Jenny as a, as the final girl of this film, right? It's not so much that she goes from being timid and weak and then realizing her inner strength. It's that she she goes from having inner strength to having just a shit ton more inner strength. Well, it's interesting yeah. too because this. Well, go on, John. I'm sorry, we haven't let you speak enough. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> More John content. No, 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 no. Sorry. Uh, go on. Go on. What well, I, I was going to say, uh, I think this is where we can segue into Darla, because after yes. being chased by Leatherface, um, she ends up, you know, finding Darla again. And she's like, I, ne- I need you to help me. Please help me. And, you know, for a second, you think, you know, uh, maybe Darla Darla's not part of the family. Um, it's sort of like a Drayton Sawyer scenario in the in the first film, where you know Sally finds the cook, and at the gas station, yep. and you know you think, oh, he he's the good guy, he's going to help her, but things are not as they seem. And uh, Darla, we we find out is part of the family. W. E. Sawyer, uh, she calls him. They abuse jenny a little bit and they put her in a bag and she's put in the in in the back of darla's truck and darla says uh i ordered pizza tell vilmer i'll be home with it and and be ready so it doesn't get cold and uh they go out to to get their pizza and their food for the night and i I wanted to talk a little bit about the darla character uh since we're we've gotten to that point there's so much to analyze with this film Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky.